Wasn't that fantastic? Praise God. The one song was one of the clearest explanations of the hypostatic union I've ever heard. <laughs> that was great. Pastor Scott is sick and called this morning and asked if I could take what I did yesterday for the Christmas pageant. Apologies to those of you who are there also. Expand a little bit uh, for tonight. So thrilled to do that, but sorry for the reason. Pray for Pastor Scott. And let's pray as we turn to God's word for a few minutes. Father, we do pray Pastor Scott would get well quickly, uh, bring healing there and any other suffering from illness, we ask. Thank you for blessing the children, presenting such great truths from your word and song this evening, and all those ministering to them through this ministry, uh, investing in them with truth and teaching them worship. We, we give you thanks. And as we spend a few minutes in your word, guide our time here to your truth. Open our hearts, minds to receive it. We pray your spirit would transform our thinking and our living accordingly for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Romans 6.23 is the scripture we'll spend a few minutes focusing on. Philip Keller spent part of his life as a sheep rancher and later went into ministry. He ended up writing a book on Psalm 23. And in it, one of the things he describes is how in his experience, the, the life of a particular sheep depended upon who that sheep's owner was. And he illustrated it where uh, his ranch had another ranch next to it that had tenants rather than the owner keeping the sheep, and they weren't very good tenants. And he, he writes this. He says, in my memory, I can still see one of the sheep ranches operated by tenant sheepmen. He ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again, they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the wire at the green, lush pastures which my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I'm sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. He goes on to write, this is a picture which has never left my memory. It is a picture of pathetic people the world over who've never known what it is to belong to the good shepherd, who suffer instead under sin and Satan. Who our shepherd is makes all the difference. Or in, in terms of Romans 6 here, who our master is makes all the difference. Verse 23 concludes a chapter that, that makes clear that we serve one of two masters. We either serve sin or we serve God. It's one or the other. There's not middle ground. There aren't other options. Within serving sin, there are many options, but they all come down to serving sin. Or we serve God. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the following contrasts uh, as we look at this, at this verse. There's the, there's the first part of the verse, there's the contrastive conjunction but, and then there's the second part of the verse. And within that, there are direct uh, contrasts to one another. So first, the wages contrast with the free gift. Wages are something that, that are earned. So we think in terms of you, you work this many hours for this rate per hour, and therefore you've earned this much money for that, for that job. Or maybe it's set up where you accomplish this, and for accomplishing this, you're paid this. However it's structured, the idea of a wage is it's something earned by what, by what we do. That contrasts with the free gift, which is being given something not earned, specifically not earned. And, and it's emphasized here, I mean, that's the definition of a gift anyway, but it's emphasized free gift to make sure it's clear that the, the recipient of sin contrasted with the free gift of God. Sin is, our sin, when we serve sin, when sin is our master, it earns us these certain wages, which will be the third contrast. When God is our master, God is the giver of the free gift. So the first part of this verse, where sin is our master, earning wages, is where we all start. It, it began with Adam. So the moment Adam ate of that fruit that God said not to eat, he sinned. Of course, Eve, you know, with him, had temp Satan tempted Eve, who tempted Adam. And, and so once that sin entered, we all sinned in Adam. The only exception, as they were just singing about, would be Christ who, when he took on humanity, did not have the sin nature passed to him, as all of us have. But with that, that one exception, we, are all, we all start out. The default master of our lives is sin. That's how we start. Ephesians describes it as, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. That's the, that's the beginning. Physically alive, but we're spiritually dead at the start of our existence because of the fall, because of Adam, because of sin, and then we sin ourselves as well. It's the way of sin, we're slaves to sin, and it earns us death. And then when God is our master, that's the other way, that's the other option. And the end there is not earned, rather it's a, it's a gift that God gives in, uh, if we back up a little bit to verse 16, it says, do, not, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Do you not know? He's, 
This is an obvious truth is what he's saying there. You're a slave to the one you obey. Your, our obedience reveals our master. So we could say God's our master, but if we're obeying, if our, if our life is obeying sin, then it demonstrates sin is actually our master. Paul says, when you present yourselves, indicating we choose who we will obey. Now, earlier in the chapter, it makes clear, as all of Scripture does, that because we start out in that default position of sin as our master, even as we make the choice, it's always to serve sin, unless God steps in and intervenes and, and brings us to new life and to repentance and to faith and to him being our master. Once saved, now we're free to choose not to sin and to obey God. And our pattern of choice reveals our master. John MacArthur writes, although sin promises satisfaction, it instead brings misery, frustration, and hopelessness. Verse 16 here in Romans 6 says, either of sin resulting in death, the, the sin as our master brings death. The other master is God, of obedience resulting in righteousness. And it makes clear this refers to obedience to God. If we obey him, we go the way of righteousness. It's a clear cut either or, two choices. No others, no in between. We can't have it both ways. Back to verse 23, the third contrast. The wages of sin is death. In contrast to the free gift of God is eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. Death. What is he referring to as this consequence, this wage of, or wages of sin? Well, three types of death are described through the scriptures. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that here the emphasis is on the final one, but it's not excluding that they're all three connected. So the moment Adam sinned, as we mentioned earlier, he was spiritually dead. That, that moment he was separated from God, no longer in a, in a right relationship. Now he has sin between him and God, and Eve as well. And that's the way we start out in Ephesians 2, spiritually dead, separated, not right, sin separating us. The second type of death is physical death. So that moment Adam sinned and, began, and was spiritually dead, he began to die physically. Now in God's providence, it took over 900 years, but he died. And his children died. And his children died. If you go back in Genesis and read the genealogies, what's at the end of each name? And he died. And he died. And he died. Enoch stands out because it's such an exception that God chose to just take him as a foreshadow of what God can do, the difference God makes as the master. But the rule of physical death is there for us. And it's true of us too. 
from the moment we're in the womb, we're on our way to physical death unless Christ comes back first. So there's spiritual death, there's physical death, and then there's eternal death. Damnation, hell, eternal torment, Jesus describes it. Flames, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, It's being under the wrath of God forever. That's a pretty horrific consequence, right? That's a horrific wage that that our sin is, is earning. And our sinful flesh rises up against that. We don't like that. We think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm better than that person and that person and that person and that person. Yeah, I'm not as good as that person. We, we get into comparisons and we're, we, we focus horizontally. But if we focus by the grace of God on God... He's infinitely holy, and we owe an infinite debt of wrath for offending his holiness with our sin. It's a wage. We've earned the wage of this eternal death. The contrast. But the free gift of God is eternal life. What's eternal life? It certainly includes the aspect of aspect of lasting forever, eternally. But it's much more than that. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God, to know Christ to know in, in, in an intimate, personal sense. Not to know about, not to have knowledge of, although it, of course, would include that, but to know, intimately know the Lord. Lloyd-Jones adds that in 1 John 3, it includes when he takes us to be with himself and we see Christ face to face, it includes being made like Christ as part of eternal life. The, the sins removed, we're now like him, not in his not in his divinity, but in his communicable attributes, in, 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 the, in the, the fruit of the Spirit now being perfected, love and peace and joy and so forth, like Christ. Now, we, we have these three sets of contrasts in the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. But there's something in the verse left out of that contrast, and it's the last phrase. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the second part, the free gift of God is eternal life, is further described as in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That makes the difference. Remember our default position, our starting point is the first part of the verse. The wages of sin is death. The wages for our being a slave to our own sin is physical death, spiritual death, and ultimately eternal death. The only thing, the only way, the only difference that can be made to change that state for us to God being our master and being the recipient of his free gift of eternal life 
is Jesus Christ our Lord, being in Jesus Christ our Lord. The children were right. He had to be both God and man together. Only the God-man could accomplish the, the salvation, the free gift of eternal life. And so Christ had to be both. He was eternally, he, he is eternally God the Son. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, the one true God in three persons is. He, he, he is the I am. He's eternally self-existent and then made everything else. So God the Son created and then in the fullness of time he comes, God sends him become a baby in the womb of a virgin. Miraculous birth, taking on humanity, sinless humanity, but fully human. Born, lived a sinless life, fully the God-man. There's no mixing of his divinity and his humanity, but he's fully each and fully united in, in his one person, Jesus Christ. And as we think of that, of that scene of Christmas, as Mary holds Jesus, or for that matter, as Joseph holds Jesus, he, he's still God. As Colossians says, he's sustaining everything. He's, he's keeping Mary's heart beating as she's holding him. Her breath continuing, her life going on, Every molecule continues to be held together. All the stars and the planets and everything's, everything is in his control as she holds him. And at the same time, he is 100% dependent on her as his mother, Joseph as his earthly father, like any other baby. Completely dependent. It's, it's really a mind-boggling uh, reality of what happened there in the incarnation and then, and then birth of Christ. A couple of quotes that I drew from uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel by Jonathan Gibson. One is by B.B. Warfield. He writes, The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is. On whose mighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God and the man or the man and God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer us. And then Thomas Watson writes, He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. That the ancient of days should be born. That he who thunders in... in oh, sorry. That he who thunders in should cry in the cradle. That he who rules the stars should suck the breast. That the branch should bear the vine. 
that the mother should be younger than the child she bore and the child in the womb bigger than the mother. That the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. This was not only amazing, but miraculous. So, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the God-man who accomplished our salvation by living a sinless, perfect life that God demands. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Christ said. Where we have all failed to and faced that eternal wrath. And so when we repent and believe on Christ, he credits that perfect life that he lived to our credit. And then the sins that we have committed and will that must be justly, rightly paid for by the eternal wrath of God poured upon us, he went to the cross to suffer that in our place. For every single chosen one who, that's every single one who repents and trusts Christ as their savior. He accomplished it was buried, and was raised the third day. He is the God-man who saves his people from their sin and thus gives the gift, the free gift of eternal life in him. It's by his grace received through faith. It's not, it's not a wage earned. Not even part of it is a wage earn, earned. If we get what we earn... It's death. If we receive the gift, it's eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question for us is, are we in Christ? Are you in Christ? If not, repent, believe, come to Christ. If you are, thank God for that. And share that good news with others. And take Christmas as an opportunity to share that good news with others, to point them to the one and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. One other scripture. I didn't know if I'd have time or not. Turn to Galatians 4. Here in Galatians 4, Paul uses the analogy of slavery, not exactly the same way as Romans 6, but also the, the idea of being a child of God, a son of God. So first the analogy is set up in verses 1 and 2. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So his analogy is, as a child, an heir is no different from a slave. So even though the heir, as a son, is ultimately going to be the owner of everything, in his childhood, he has guardians and masters. That, and so he's a slave in the sense that he's, he's controlled by them. 
He has to go where they say he should go and not where he says not to go, and they control uh, what he does and doesn't do and so forth. And so in that sense, no different from a slave. And the state of virtual slavery would stay in effect until the date set by the father. Then picking up at verse 3, he describes how as believers, God has brought us in, who are in Christ from being slaves to being children and heirs. So verse 3, similar to Romans, points out that we start out as slaves. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. When we were children, drawing from the analogy, points to our state prior to being justified in Christ, prior to repenting and believing, is what it's referring to. The context from chapters 3 and 4 include speaking of people being imprisoned by the law, the law being our guardian until Christ came, sending Christ to redeem those under the law, the Galatians observing days and months and seasons and years being connected to their desire to once again be slaves to the elementary principles of the world. And so in short, the elementary principles of the world refer to the world's way of seeking to be right and to attain heaven, which always takes some form of performing works of thinking, whether it's from the Jewish context, I can take God's law and keep it myself to earn my way to, to God. Or from a pagan perspective, I can do these religious activities uh, or some kind of moral good to get myself right with the gods or to God and so forth. It's, it's the common denominator of every religion, every philosophy except biblical Christianity. It's always some form of this slavery to the elemental things of the world, to earning our own way, and we can never do it. Everyone starts out as slaves to their own sin, into the world's ways, trying some form of works. And God could rightly leave us there, and we end up, as we just saw in Romans, condemned forever under God's wrath. But in his sovereign grace, he intervenes. Verses 4 and 5. He intervenes to make believers his children. Verse 4 starts out, but. Again, God loves glorious contrasts. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. God's sovereign over everything and including over history. And he had a chosen time when the sun would come. And, and looking backwards at history, I think we could make educated guesses at some of the, th the things God put in place for the coming of Christ and the spreading of the gospel, and the launching of the church. Things like a common language. A little over 300 years before Christ's birth, Alexander the Great conquered a vast area of, of that part of the world. He died quickly, but his successors divided it up, and the Greek language continued to take hold and became the common language. So, Every people would, 
would speak their local language and Greek, local language and Greek. And it gave, it gave a shared language. When we don't have the shared language, it really complicates communicating. But you had this common language set and ready for, for the Lord to send Christ, to reveal the New Testament in that language, and for Paul and all the others who went out as missionaries and, and spread the gospel. The Romans. So the Romans then came and conquered that part of the world, a vast part of the world, and they brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So as they established their control, it gave relative peace, which gave freedom to travel and spread the gospel and launch those churches. Yes, there came to be persecution as well, <clears throat> but not before the spreading of the gospel was taking place. Uh, connected to that, they built great roads. We take great roads f f for granted. Um, not all the world has that. You know, we have the interstate system and the highway system. And uh, I remember going to South Africa on a mission trip, and for a few days, a couple of us went up into Mozambique. And when we got to the, you know, South Africa's first world highways, and we get to the border, we go through. Um, all the checkpoints and everything, and we come out the other side, and there are three, uh, you know, two kind of dirt paths for the wheels type roads. There were three of those in high brush, and that was it. Just that con contrast, we, we take good roads for granted, and the Romans built good roads. All roads lead back to Rome, and it gave this ability to take the gospel and spread. And, and then when God had dispersed the Jews, some had been brought back, but many stayed in all places around, around the Rome, now the Roman Empire at this time, and they developed the synagogue system. So they would have a synagogue where they would worship, read the scriptures, and it gave a, a, a launching point in each city, as you read Paul and Acts, for instance, but as the, the church would spread, there's this launching point set up. These are educated guesses, but, but the point being, God's sovereign, he's, he's in control of everything, and he had things ready to send his son and launch his church. And of course, all the more spiritual readiness to, to those who are his elect, he had ready to see, I can't do it myself. I can't keep the law. I'm a sinner before God. My only hope is the Savior and to come to faith by God's grace. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's an amazing, powerful reality, as we were just describing from Romans 6, as we heard sung tonight. Born of a woman, fully a man. Born under the law to keep it in our place, accountable to it in his humanity, even though he's the giver of it in his deity. To redeem those, it says here, who were under the law. And were under the law, condemned by it. He was under the law, fulfilling it, keeping it. And he redeems us, condemned by it. And then rose again victorious the third day. Verse 5 concludes, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Probably all of us can think of blessings we have because of who our parents are. 
It's imperfect. There's no perfect parent, uh, human, human parent. But there's some blessings, and some of us have great blessings from our parents. But when he makes us his children, he's sinless. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's all-good. The, the blessings that come from God being our Father are infinite, unimaginable, unending. And the Bible names many of them, but it's beyond our um, imagination we re- that we might receive adoption as sons. And then verse 6, God assures us as his children by his spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And finally, verse 7 summarizes these first six verses. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As we celebrate the son this Christmas... Thank him for making you a son or a daughter, his child, through what Christ has done. And if you're not his, repent, believe, come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that there are so many scriptures we could go to and be reminded of who Christ is and why he came, and what he accomplished, and the amazing gift of eternal life that you give, and of making us your child in Christ. I do pray that as your people, we will rest in that gift. Enjoy that gift. Enjoy you in Christ. And that we'll share that that glorious good news and that you would bring others to Christ. And even, even so, this Christmas, this season, this time, bring more to faith, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great night.